Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Today we meet Chelsea, a person working towards a social work degree at UNBC. She is a cisgender, white, queer femme who is anarchist-leaning and is currently working as one of the humans pioneering conflict resolution strategies in a survivor support role. She's also currently doing a lot of side projects. She is recently published as a feminist undergrad on the topic of practicing non-monogamy in the context of patriarchy, which is really interesting to me. She's also working with women reporting they experienced harm in their relationships and in their interactions with Franklin Vaux. We chat today about what relationships are and how sex and trauma are inherently political. Okay, and then we so can like, build up to more complicated stuff. Um, I'm doing survivor advocacy work with women who have been harmed in relationships with Franklin Vaux. Okay. Yeah. That's specific and clear, I think. I think so, too, that... A person named Franklin Vaux, who some people may not have heard of, right. um, is a person who has had relationships like many people, yeah. and some of those people have experienced harm in their interactions with Franklin. Yeah. Um, and there is now a survivor support team working with those people who have experienced harm mm -hmm. in their interactions with Franklin, and that Franklin has his own support team as well, mm -hmm. specifically for him and advocating for his perspective. Mm -hmm. and it seems like that's what they're doing right now. <laughs> Is that how these processes are supposed to work? No. Okay. <laughs> um, it seems to me that uh, the people working with Franklin at this point um, are getting to understand accountability processes. Okay. And learning how to face him and hold him accountable for harms that he has perpetrated. And that's not easy. No, it's not easy at all. Like I hold, don't envy their position. Holding oneself accountable is hard. Yes. Holding someone else accountable is near impossible. Yes. Like if a person doesn't want to be held accountable, it's very hard to hold them accountable. Yes. That is entirely part Ask of why I don't envy their position. Ask any mother. <laughs> yes. And that is with absolute authority over another person's autonomy and moms still struggle to get points across. Yeah, that's real for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel and like we're a mom? dealing with grown-ass adults now. <laughs> yeah. I, I often talk about accountability like that, that we're essentially dealing with, like, the position moms used to hold, where, like, yeah. if shit happened and went sideways, you would tell your mom, and your mom would tell their mom, yes. and then their mom would just go to town on them, like... Yeah. And ultimately, the message would be, don't be a dick, participate in community ethically. Yes. Whatever that means, because that's yes. very, very subjective. That is very subjective. <laughs> Um, but it would be subjective to the mom standard of what the quote-unquote right behavior was in society. Yes. And that's subjective as well. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, what else should I say about that work? 
we have several women who have survived uh, intimate partner abuse with Franklin, and we are efforting to support their voices being reinstalled into stories that he's been telling for a very long time about their relationships. Okay. I'm I'm mindful of trying to be as neutral as possible mm-hmm. as a podcast host. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I will be limited in what I will say in response to that. That's cool. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. So yeah. that sounds like really cutting edge and interesting work that you're doing. Like regardless of what anyone's perspective is in this work or about this work mm-hmm. or whether they're on Franklin's support team mm-hmm. or um, the survivor support team, mm-hmm. a lot of this is really new. Yeah, we've been fielding a lot of um, skepticism about the legitimacy of the complaints that we're right. positing, right. for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been difficult to navigate because we're very cognizant of a uh, like, gravitational pull to um, center Franklin's experience and figure out a way for him to redeem himself and figure out a way for him to move forward within community without Mm -hmm. being like, we're not interested in him being ostracized or excluded. Right. I Um, mean, that's just an analog for incarceration anyway, which is something that restorative justice fights against. Yes. And, um, we're trying, we're efforting at a transformative justice process, which Mm -hmm. basically means that we're hoping for transformation as opposed to any restoration of what what relationships were in existence before mm-hmm. we're looking for something else. Yeah. I, I like that shift in language. Mm-hmm. I've never made that connection that the notion of restorative justice was to attempt to restore anything mm-hmm. that had existed prior. Mm-hmm. This I hear is also a compl- like a complaint. I'm making air quotes right now. Yep. Um, <laughs> about a uh, language of reconciliation right. in terms of um, right. colonization and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because reconciliation suggests that there was ever a friendly relationship to start with. Right. And I don't think that that is the case. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Um, so, I mean, of course, we're two settler-descended people having this conversation, yes. so I'd like to acknowledge that. But also, yes. I would agree with you. I'm not sure that there ever was one. I yeah. certainly wasn't around for it. Yeah. And I certainly haven't seen any written history of it. Yeah. Um, so... In our process, we're <clears throat> attempting to transform our community. Um, Mm -hmm. to acknowledge uh, power imbalances and absences of voices in narratives that we've been using to inform people on alternative relationship models. That's really complicated. Yes. There was so much academic language. I'm trying to think of one simplified sentence to simplify it to, and I can't. Um, There's been a conversation going on about how to conduct alternative relationships. Yes. It has been informed by a set of voices. Yes. And we're attempting to include more people in that conversation. I like that. That, that seems a lot clearer to me. So yeah. when we're talking about alternative relationships, do you want to just dig in that a little more mm-hmm. to kind of unearth some ideas? Um, things that don't pertain to normal monogamy. Right. So like everything else. Everything else. Everything else. <laughs> everything that isn't a heterosexual monogamous relationship. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that we identify all relationships as alternative, except for the one type that we've centered as quote unquote normal. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I hear the jaded bitterness in your voice. <laughs> um, I think that in a lot of things, there are default expectations right. of what something looks like, like right. schemas. Um, that's like psychology language. What do you mean by a schema? 
um, a set of information that we believe to be true of a concept. Sure, like almost like um, like a worldview or a perspective. Yes. yes. Cool. But in psychology, it's called a schema. Yeah, it's so the language of schema is in reference to like, like let's say um, as an example, like when I say bird, you think of some stuff. Sure. <laughs> All the stuff that you think of when I say bird is schema about birds. Got you. So okay. I can see that. Yeah. That seems like complicated. It's like all of the related ideas and assumptions and baggage and yeah. social norms and like literally like that's a lot. Yeah. Like you if when I say bird you might see a seagull, I might see a crow. Those are completely different animals. Mhm. Corv- <laughs> corvids are notably more intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about crows, of course. For people that don't know that corvids are crows, which is fair. Yeah. That's a very obscure piece of bird knowledge. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, corvids are fantastic. Ravens as well are included in corvids. Okay. Um, and uh, they yeah, do they're smart. They remember stuff. And like multi-layer problem solving. Mm-hmm. They can solve multiple problems in a row and view the entire series of challenges as like a means to an end. They're like, okay, cool, cool. I see food and it's inside like this type of a cage with this type of a lock. Mm-hmm. But like the padlock has been left askew and I can identify that as a problem I can solve by just taking the padlock out and opening the door. Mm. Except that's inside of another cage and that's, you know, there's like twist wire around the lock. Cool. I can identify that as a second problem. Right. And they can abstractly reason in like logical steps of how to get back to food, which is like a skill that a lot of animals don't have. Right. Hmm. A lot of, um, um, is it cetacean, the word I'm looking for? Again, so academic, but I'm talking about like dolphins, whales, things like that. Okay. I think they're cetaceans. Um, but they also have really great reasoning skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. I know nothing. And cephalopods, about... like octopodes, yeah. if you will. If you really want to be like the academic asshole that busts out the Greek plural. Um, <laughs> octopuses is totally acceptable. Totally acceptable. Awesome. We're totally off topic. I'm, you know what makes me angry off topic? People who insist that octopi is the correct plural. I'm like, it's not even a Latin word. You're no. just like, you're, you're like a Victorian hipster right now. Yeah. Like out of time, out of place. What are you doing yeah. with, you, with the entirety of your life? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm done ranting about English. Um, octopuses. TLDR. Octopuses is fine. You are justified in using it. Yeah. So, I agree with that. That was an interesting <laughs> intro. <laughs> Um, (laughs) so what we established was you have a social work degree or sorry, you're getting your social work degree at UNBC. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you're primarily focused on, um, non-monogamy in the context of a patriarchal society. Is that right? Yeah. So that's what I'm kind of doing academically on the side from my social work degree. Um, a lot of the social work stuff that I'm working on currently, uh, has to do with women's support services and queer women engaging with women's support services. Oh, um, that's a great topic. Yeah. So that's kind of like the stuff I'm writing about in my degree program. And then, um, I wrote a paper and presented it at a, uh, feminism undergrad conference at Douglas college a couple okay. of weeks ago. That was about, uh, that was titled non-monogamy under patriarchy. Right. Um, and I kind of did that on my own time with my own resources, resources and like submitted the paper, like sep- like very separate from the degree work that I'm doing. Right. Um, did, I, I consider that... that to be like a side gig. <laughs> Like an academic side gig. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think it also lends a lot of credibility to you as like an academic because you're doing all this stuff, not because you're required to for a course, but you're building a body of work for yourself that hopefully you find meaningful. What I'm trying to do is get things published 
mm-hmm. at the like very um, and in a kind of like open source sort of way. I know that eventually there will become um, hoops and hurdles that I will have to jump over in order to get things published, and that those barriers are low at the undergrad level. Mm. So I'm taking advantage of that. That's a really good idea. Yeah, I hadn't um, thought of it like that. Yeah. Things uh, get very gatekeepy very quickly as you move through right. academic institutions. Right. Who has the voice to who, speak? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But the people who do have the voice to speak can do so over hundreds of pages if they so choose. Yes. It's very interesting that it couldn't just be like, everyone has a voice to speak, but shut up after a few pages. Yes, entirely. I think if you gave more people that kind of space, there'd be a lot more competition for like what ideas get published. Yeah. And then just like referencing people to their own books, essentially. Um, And I think that also uh, there's value in people speaking kind of from their own social location. Um, I think that mm-hmm. historically, a lot of people in an attempt to maintain some semblance of objectivity have studied cultures and peoples that are different from theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is starting to be frowned upon Yeah, as we progress, which I love. I love that. I like when I figured out that all I had to do was write about people like me, I was like, huh, what a relief. <laughs> <laughs> I really care about this stuff. <laughs> right. So I can write about it good <laughs> and not feel bad because I'm not dealing with like, the most marginalized people that need right. the most support. There right. are lots of other people that know more about that than I do. Yeah, and they fair. should write about that stuff. Totally. Yeah. But again, that comes back to gatekeeping and like how much do we let other people write about stuff? And again, yeah. we're talking in a social science perspective because yeah. I think a lot of people will have criticism for statements like everyone should get published um, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Like not everyone's is qualified. Yeah, there's lots of men's rights activists that I think should never have anything published. Sure. Um, <laughs> I, at the same time, though, if I had to read only one page from a men's rights activist, I could discern very quickly how good the quality of those ideas would be. Yes. And I could also discern very quickly if I just wanted to turn the page. Yeah. So to me, the issue isn't so much in having a voice, it's in having a very loud voice. Right. But there is also that problem if everyone's getting equal amounts of screen time, Mm -hmm. that then there's this huge issue of like, how does a lay person without the training in academia Mm -hmm. actually make a critical evaluation of what's reasonable and what's Mm -hmm. well-researched? I think that a gaping hole in like basic primary education is critical thinking. Mm. Um, being able to, uh, look at information and establish, uh, whether you want to like adopt it into Mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. worldview, Mm -hmm. um, whether it suits you, whether it suits the people you care about. Um, yeah, I, I wish for more. I've had conversations with a few people actually about how they don't actually think that critical thinking is the thing that can be taught and that just like, no, thank you. I think that's kind of garbage. It is garbage. Um, I think that it can <laughs> My vary. critical thinking is saying, I think that's garbage. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I think that, um, yeah, I think that explaining context to folks yeah. allows them to have more uh, ability to squint their eyes a little bit at and the information totally. that they're getting. And, and some of it's structure. It's like, yeah. if you teach a problem in multiple steps where you keep revealing new information about the premise of the problem mm-hmm. as they, people are solving the problem, mm-hmm. you're forcing people to reevaluate their position and the solutions that they were very certain of a second ago. Mm-hmm. And you can design, I've seen activities built like this for education where I'm like, yeah, this is a really, really good exercise mm-hmm. in cultivating critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that being said, it's very easy to control a population that is not skilled at critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And controlling population is of the interest of very powerful people. I mean, yes, absolutely yes. 
at the same time, there's an enormous amount of freedom that's given to, I think, educators within a certain yeah. set of restrictions. Yeah. And there's a lot of subversive education that has been going on since time immemorial. Yes, entirely. Even the fact that in Vancouver they teach um, gender-neutral pronouns. Yes. I don't even care whether Zizem Zer is you know, super popular or not. I really couldn't care less about popularity of things. Yeah. But the fact that it's being taught at all is almost subversive in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's like a lot of ways that educators sort of wiggle in, mm-hmm. in the restrictions they have to mm-hmm. do very subversive things, mm-hmm. I think. And that can go both ways. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, that the like the right wing uh, conservatism can be just as subliminally placed into oh, sure. educational systems. Sure. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so I'm I'm always interested to continue having these discussions, and I'm mindful of topics focusing around intimacy. Yeah. Um, so I would like to shift gears a little and talk a bit about relationships. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. Um, do you want to start off with like, what is a relationship and what do you think relationships are for? Sure. Um, relation, <laughs> relationship is an idea uh, <laughs> shared by the people participating in it. Okay. Um, ideally. <laughs> sure. Um, cool. I think that uh, oftentimes folks don't talk about that piece very like very clearly like what Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. like what like what is even a relationship and why do you have them is i don't think a thing that a lot of people sit down and discuss especially at the front end of a relationship they're just so excited (laughs) (laughs) yes um in terms of what relationships are for uh i think that they're for connection predominantly um Mm -hmm. i think that I think that um, humans are inherently social creatures. Lots of people would like argue that. Do you think so? Yeah, I think that some people would be like, I don't need anybody. But um, (laughs) that's very interesting to me. Yeah. And like, we don't know a lot of those people. That's probably that's very possible. Why it's (laughs) interesting. Um, I have a couple friends that are so introverted that they would probably be just fine by themselves. I mean, um, except that they wouldn't have running water. Yes, except that. <laughs> like, and, like, those are the blind spots, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think the relationships are predominantly for connection. I also think that they're for, like, uh, like solidarity, mutual aid. Um, social support? Social support. Cool. Yeah, those things. Are you interested in hearing my definitions? Yes. Okay. So I would say that relationships are a strategy for meeting human needs. Right. Which may include things like connection, but may also include things like play and joy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. As much as some people hate the word joy. (laughs) It includes things like debate, potentially. Maybe Mm -hmm. intellectual stimulation. Or maybe we have relationships for other reasons. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have relationships for physical safety and sustenance, like employer-employee relationships or business-to-business relationships. So I tend to look at it very zoomed out from like, how can we literally break every relationship down to a common definition? And Mm -hmm. I see all relationships as a strategy just to meet human needs. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is based on the notion of us being social animals. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when you start talking about needs, having a framework of needs is really helpful. Mm-hmm. I know that in um, restorative justice circles, they use the good lives model where they discuss needs as quote unquote primary goods. 
I don't know if you're familiar with this, but if you're looking into restorative justice, it's very worth looking at the good lives model. Yeah, I'm going to look into that. That's interesting. Um, and then on the flip side of things, there's the nonviolent communication model, right. which is like, here's a charter of human needs or like, a, right. yeah, an inventory of human needs. And then there's an inventory of internal feelings as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. And I think uh, like based on the kind of relationship it is, I think there's a lot of those things that are implied and not explicitly negotiated, like the employer-employee relationship. Like yeah. the employee is expected to do some labor and the employer is expected to pay for that labor. Um, mm -hmm. But that's not really like custom or specific or like... Yeah. Um, which is why we have contracts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, imagine if every relationship had a contract. Yeah, it sounds exhausting. Yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> So some of the like uh, like normal expectations that we have of how certain relationships are going to function or how an exchange is going to happen um, are helpful because then we don't just get exhausted with all the semantics. Right. right. Uh, but in other cases, it can be happy. It can be very helpful to go through those semantics and just make sure you're on the same page with the other person. Totally. Yeah. Um, especially if you are discussing something important. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to have to negotiate my relationship with the person making my food at a fast food place. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to cleave to a social script. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to follow a social script. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to use less academic jargon yeah. in my English. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to just be really polite, ask mm -hmm. for what I want, and mm -hmm. pay money at the end of the line, and like expect that I'll have clean, safe food made for me. Yeah. I think that's a very reasonable script to reduce exhaustion for all people. Yeah, totally. At the same time, if the person working to make me food is also like an intimate partner, and we're going to be having sex, possibly, whatever that means, mm -hmm. later that night, I would really like to talk about what that means in more detail, mm -hmm. and get like really clear on how we each want to like keep each other safe and enjoy each other's company whatever shape that takes yeah that makes sense yeah so it's just a question of like how important is this relationship and like how comfortable are you with the relationship going sideways because mm -hmm. if the person making my food gets really angry at me because i've said something worst case scenario i can walk away yeah there's very little chance of there being um physical violence in a public place mm -hmm. um, because there are so many social deterrents it's possible but there's like little chance of that yeah on yeah, other... you could be, like, the 10th person that was rude that day. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And there are the camel's back breaks. Yes. It's yeah. altogether possible. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that while I am alone with my relationship partner, um, that if things go sideways, there's a lot of risk for harm. There's yes. a lot of risk for threat. There's a lot of risk for fear. And, mm -hmm. like, the stakes are much higher. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of those balancing acts, I think. Mm -hmm. And that actually touches on a lot of why I have pursued non-monogamous relationships is for surveillance for surveillance yeah um because i have a history of uh some violence in relationships that i've been in and i find it easier to live with relational trauma where i have more than just one other human to rely on for some emotional support and also to like have their eyes on my life in a close and intimate way. Right. And one of the typical like abusive behaviors is removing social connection yes. and social support from yes. a victim yeah. so as to make them less resistant to abuse and yes. increase one's power over the other. Yeah. So by having a non-monogamous social structure, you have all of these people mutually invested in the well-being of mm -hmm. your mental health mm -hmm. and they'd be able to spot for that type of abusive behavior. Yeah. Cool. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Awesome. 
Hmm. So how do you see the relationship between relationships and intimacy? Hmm. Um, I think that like you can't have intimacy without a relationship, uh, no matter how long or short that relationship may be. Okay. Um, so they're kind of hinged on each other. I think that there are a lot of different kinds of intimacy that can have, that can like exist between two people Mm -hmm. or more for that matter. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, they're kind of like, they're kind of buds. They're kind (laughs) of buds. For lack of a better way of putting it. Um, I'm like making a hand gesture where my fingers are like intertwining each other. Uh, I appreciate yeah. that you narrate all of your physical actions. I mean, it helps. I it's talk with my so hands helpful. a lot, and like people are just listening to this. Right, they are. <laughs> all my hand gestures are missing. <laughs> That's true. And and you do you do talk with your hands a lot, and yeah. I actually really appreciate that about you that you are very like gestureful. Yeah, <laughs> good word. Thank you. I made it myself. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wonder, um, I mean, I think that you can have relationships without intimacy. Sure. Um, in so far as we agree that like, what those what, words like mean, what yeah. intimacy means. Sure. Um, um, cause in a sense it's very intimate that my employer has the ability to stop paying me. Oh yeah. Like, like that's are, a big deal. They are intimately invested in how much I'm making Yeah. and have a lot of control over my life. And there's yeah. just this assumption they won't abuse that power. Yeah. And there are all of these social contracts around how they can go about paying you and the amount of time before they supposedly have to pay you. Yeah. But like the total punishments, if they don't do that, are very small and they take a very long time to get any traction on. Mm-hmm. Speaking as someone who's been through... Um, like the employment standards branch of BC, Mm -hmm. because in this province we have really good worker support legislation. And yet Mm -hmm. it can take a very long time to see any action. Mm -hmm. You may get paid back a percentage of what is 100% rightfully owed you by your contract. Mm -hmm. And that may be paid back like between six months and 24 months later. Yeah. That's like a lot. Especially if you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's like ruthlessly disruptive of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely been in an abusive employer-employee relationship before. Yeah. Like right down to including a person who like threw things and like punched walls, kind of like abusive. Wow. Yeah. So when people... That's stunning. Yeah. So when people talk about like, I mean, not to explain it away as most survivors do, Uh um, but to explain it away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. Um, this person had experienced a really severe head injury. Right. And when you have brain injury, people's personalities can shift a little. Yeah, absolutely. And they can become really abusive where they didn't used to be super abusive. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, again, that comes back to critical thinking. Mm-hmm. When you start including more pieces in the narrative, people start reevaluating their assumptions about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas some people would be like, oh, I would never stand for that. Like, how did Victor even find himself in that relationship? I mm-hmm. used to respect Victor for being one of those people that is a, somehow above abuse. Oh, and it's God. like, you know what I mean? Like that whole line oh, of God. shitty. <laughs> that's like a whole, like, that's a whole that's podcast. A whole podcast. We could like podcast for an hour about like shame, low key victim shame totally. in like every element of everything we do. It's huge. Yeah. We victim shame a lot. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, Yeah. I would tend to agree with you about like intimacy and relationships, also about victim shaming, but intimacy and relationships, definitely like the notion of being in like to use a strategy to get your needs met with Mm -hmm. another human being Mm -hmm. is itself intimate because it pertains to your needs. Yeah. I would say. What would you say your definition of intimacy is though? Ooh, 
you caught me unawares with that one. What is my <laughs> definition of intimacy? I would say it has to do with like, like emotional proximity almost. Like okay. how close is someone? How how much does someone know about you? And almost like how much power does that give them? Right. Like I think intimacy is a form of power. Right. I think so too. Because it's about like how close are you to someone's like heart junk in mm-hmm. a sense. Um, for, lack of better, for lack of a better term. <laughs> That's a great term. That's exactly what it is. It is heart junk. It's like all of your feels. Yeah. How much how much knowledge and access does someone have to your psyche, mm-hmm. essentially, is what I would say. My like lay definition of intimacy is, but I don't actually know what it would be. Yeah. Um, the person at the fast food joint that makes your food... Um, like, if they say, like, if you go up there and say, I want a burger and fries, and they're like, no, actually, I think you're a dick, then, like... <laughs> that's solid. Like, that's, like, it's, uh, there's, like, there's a level of intimacy there where it's, like, like, you just got to, like, hurting each other's feelings with words. <laughs> yeah, you've, like, broken the social contract you've of totally professionalism. you totally broken the social contract yeah. entirely. It can change like that. <laughs> like that. It just takes the person who should be asking you if you want fries with that telling you to fuck off. Yeah. Because <laughs> then your feelings get hurt. Yeah. Um, regardless of who it is. Although I think if, like, the burger vendor person um, told me I was a jerk just because I ordered a burger, I would be like... Wow, okay. <laughs> like, I would, like, first my... response would be like, wow. <laughs> I feel like my first response would be slowly squinting my eyes and then just being like, respect. <laughs> I'd be like, keep fighting oppressive structures, friend. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to serve me shit. You're doing great, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe not quite that far, but yeah, that's definitely a short-lived revolt right there. Oh, yeah, good. Okay. But I would also And be... there is intimacy in revolution, so Interesting. Well, I mean, how could there not be? Like exactly. you're literally talking about putting your life on the line with someone. Yeah. I mean, just like there's intimacy in like people who are soldiers. Right. Of any kind. Oh god, yeah. Whether they're organized by a professional as a professional army or whether they're not. Mm-hmm. Like the notion of risking your life for any cause mm-hmm. is like fundamentally the cause has to be really close to your heart junk. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, it's intimate. Yeah. It's almost as if intimacy is political. <laughs> Ooh, now there's there's an interesting idea. Is intimacy political? Because a lot of people don't like thinking of sex as political. They like thinking, which it inherently is. In yeah, my I was gonna say it like all of be. those, all of the people listening to this, sex is political. Yeah, you gotta let that go. And for people, <laughs> it who, is and for everything's who, political, right? And for people who don't understand that, I try and make my podcast accessible to them as well. Right. So, do you want to talk from a heterosexist, heterocentric mm-hmm. idea of sex yeah. and explain how it's political to simply go along with the scripts that are already written. Um, in most interactions with people of different social locations, in the heteronormative um, relational model, you've got a man and a woman, yep. if we're going to adhere to the binary. Sure. Vomit emoji. Um <laughs> Um, it's and hard, right? Yeah. And it's hard going back to that. I know. Um, I had to do it to write that paper. And it, like, I wrote a big caveat at the front end, which made me feel a little better, but I still kind of felt gross. Um, <laughs> so you have like two people who like want different things in a relationship and um, they've each been socialized to expect different things in right. their relationship. Right. And there's politics to that. Um, there's like, in terms of what those expectations are and like how we view 
um, people's adherence to those scripts or not. Right. Uh, is political in nature um, because it has to do, it can be like plotted on a spectrum. Like you could plot that on a spectrum of left to right. And, Tell, say more about that. Um, so that's, that's not a command. Feel free to fight the power, but also like I would be interested <laughs> to hear you say more about that. <laughs> Uh, so I actually like had this conversation a long time ago with a friend about um, like different structures of non-monogamy being plotted on a political spectrum. But I think that you can take it to like uh, like a more heterosexual uh, man-woman relationship thing and say that like uh, we consider like conservatism to be maintaining status quo. Sure. And we consider um, liberalism to be liberalism with and ideas. left because I still think liberal is like center. Um, so like leftist, (laughs) it's, it's that window of like, I forget what it's called, but it's the window of political discourse. Right. It has a name. And then just in recent, in the recent couple of decades, that window has been shifting really far to the right. Mm -hmm. So as to include things like libertarians and Mm -hmm. like tea party folks Mm -hmm. in like rational mainstream discourse Mm -hmm. and to not laugh at them Mm -hmm. in the way that if you included genuine, serious, social activists and communists from the mm-hmm. other side of the spectrum people would laugh at them yeah. right they would literally say like this is laughable why are we even considering this yeah but they would consider very similar anarchist ideas from the other side of the spectrum mm-hmm. cuz like when i think of relationship anarchy it's i almost think of it like a horseshoe you could think of it as being very far left mm-hmm. you could also think of it as being very far right right because like anarchy and libertarianism actually have a lot of things in common like tons yeah I think. there's like some very key differences but um I like in a class last term, my instructor sure. was basically like, this is a spectrum and it goes in a circle and like, look yeah. at how this can like this far right end can actually come back and meet the far left. And I totally lost my shit. Well, I, <laughs> I so was I've, so upset. That's, <laughs> Cause I was like, no, if I keep going left, I will just stay left. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not going to eventually get to right. That's weird. <laughs> I don't like it. It's so interesting. Cause that's, that comes from such an emotional place yeah. of what we associate with ideas of right and left. Yeah. And for me, I try my very best to be as much a centrist as possible, even though I've had people say that I'm, I'm quote radical left by definition, mm-hmm. just because I think I quote unquote identity politics is really just civil rights. Mm-hmm. I'm like giving, saying that I don't control who has the right to marry doesn't seem like a radical position to me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why should anyone have the right to control who gets married? Mm-hmm. We're literally talking about rights to, to tax. But um, there's still a lot of places where that's a very radical idea. Right. Where like the notion that you should tax queer people more is just considered like that's normal. Mm-hmm. But the notion that people should be free to be like taxed reasonably, not about what their sexuality is, is radical left. Like it just like blows my mind. Yeah. And people have told me that's what makes me radical left is that this concept blows my mind. Yeah. I'm like, it seems like civil rights are just a no brainer to me. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, people of yeah, color, there yet. people of color should have the same rights in yeah. like police engagements. Yep. They should have the same rights in voting. Like, why is this radical left? But it is apparently radical left to have those opinions. And yeah. I'm like, I hate the term radical. Like, if you want to call it left, call it left. But to call it radical is to say it's verging on outside of the window. Mm-hmm. And the notion that like people of color should have equal access to police services mm-hmm. and hospital services and, and rental services, mm-hmm. like the notion that that is radical to me is like 
no, you've lost your fucking mind. It's mm-hmm. not. It shouldn't be verging on the window of what's acceptable to talk about. Left, if you want to call like equality among races, like radical, sure. Like mm-hmm. I think that says more about you than it does about me personally. Like that's the way that I approach that. Yeah, absolutely. And like based on what you've just described, um, I consider myself to be pretty extremist left. <laughs> <laughs> You're like right. You're like if that's radical, like yeah. that is like. That is like the hundred like, miles. I'm like way over and like everything's awful, burn it down. Right. Like that's like the 160 kilometers to like where Chelsea lives sign. Yeah. Like you get there and it's like, no, no, keep driving. Keep driving. <laughs> you got to keep going. Got to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to the point where like my, like my profs have said things in front of the class, like Chelsea's going to hate this, but, <laughs> and then they start talking about like incremental change. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, which, which is like which is important and valuable, and it's something I and like, I like now think of it as such, but also so burn I, it down. I voiced that. <laughs> I voiced that in an unlearning anti-blackness class uh, where a white woman had been like, "We just need revolution," and I was like, "Okay, who's going to die in that revolution, white a, lady?" This is so. This is my point. So I was like. Or we can, you know, if you want to talk about dismantling capitalism, which to be honest, I'm not actually in favor of. I'm in favor of like legislating and and being mindful and controlling of Mm -hmm. capitalism in in the ways that we have started to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. we don't have child labor anymore, sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, So then like we can also, in terms of like um, the right left spectrum that we were talking about earlier, we can also talk about like we can talk about maintaining status quo or changing it as like a spectrum of right to left. And then we can also we can also talk about government intervention. Right. Where like right is like as little intervention as possible right and left is like quite a bit of government right intervention Depending in like how if, we live our lives but if we're talking about anarchist leftists then they would be the opposite of that so it's almost no, like but there's like an in, there's an expectation that the government air quotes is like yes. different entirely yeah there and is voluntary and non-hierarchical yeah in, in anarchists we're talking about right yes but i would argue that the notion of Oh, I see what you're saying. So you're saying that anarchists on the left side of the spectrum, well, we've really deviated from relationships, but at the yes. same time, we're talking about government and relationships to each other right. because that's what government is all about. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about why sex is political mm-hmm. in that having all of these ideas about how we manage relationships mm-hmm. is ultimately performing the function of government. Mm-hmm. So in terms of sex being political, though, and government intervention, I think... That, like, if someone's having sex that they didn't consent to, which is to say rape, yeah, um, there should be an intervention in that. Yeah. Like, that reasonable. is not a personal problem. That's not a private problem. That's a very public problem. Yeah. In the same way that one person being murdered isn't a private problem. Yeah. It's a very public problem. It represents yeah. a threat to society in general and yeah. other people that would become, um, like, you know, would be victims. It was not that long ago that Jews were allowed to kill their wives. Oof. Like, it actually was not that long ago. How many years? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head. I don't have that stat. Are you thinking, like, 200 or 500 or, like... Like, uh... And it's gonna I matter mean, like, society women society. got the right to vote in, like, the 10... Like, 19... Depending on which women we're talking about. Depending on which right, women are talking about. white women got the right to vote. Thank you. I and appreciate that. And then women of color, it was in the 60s or 70s. Yeah, I'm not sure when indigenous women got the right to vote. Yeah. I feel like as a settler descended person, I have more of a responsibility to yeah. know this shit. And I don't know this shit, so I, I'm genuinely sorry. I should know sorry. this shit, too. <laughs> 
that's okay. I won't, um, I won't shame you for your getting yeah, into no, the Yeah, no, that's work. like definitely something that I should think about when I say. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, so this is this is part of that like non-victim shamey piece is like yeah. just recognizing that we're all going to have gaps in our knowledge and yeah. we're all going to be imperfect and we're going to fuck up. And sometimes mm. the ways we fuck up will be stereotypical ways. Mm. And that's incredibly unfortunate when it happens. And I'm sure moving forward, mm-hmm. you will have Googled this stuff and you will then know this stuff. And yeah. it's like, why should we shame someone in the process of growth if all of us are always growing? Yeah, um, I agree with that entirely. Um, on the subject of like whether or not husbands got oh, yeah. punished <laughs> for killing their wives or not, I'm going to look that up when I like get home and okay. find out when the last time it was fine <laughs> was. When... <laughs> When, when was it, the last time it was fine for a dude to kill his wife? Well, it depends on the society. Um, right. Because if we're it's talking, still okay in other parts of the world. Yeah. If we're talking about murder with impunity, it really depends mm-hmm. because there's always sort of been a bit of, I think, and maybe I'm incorrect, but I think there's there's typically been like a sort of sidestepping of the law mm-hmm. in like a, a socially acceptable way right. of saying like, you can't murder your wife except when. And then right. people are like, oh, but this is an except when. Yeah. Um, like there's the whole dowry murder right. issue. But that's also still illegal. Yeah. It's just a crime that people commit. Yeah. So it's not even that men can murder their wives with impunity um, under the guise of, say, dowry murder in mm-hmm. India. I'm just picking one context that I right. know some little snippets about. Right. Um, but it's a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sex is political because... People get murdered. People get murdered. Also, um, whether or not someone... Whether or not someone's consent matters mm. is a political issue. Definitely. And it becomes about human rights at that point. And, I who's, think. and whose voice do we listen to? Yeah, and whose voice do we listen to? Uh, we saw a great, horrible thing um, <laughs> when Brett Kavanaugh oh. got into. Uh, what the fuck is it called? Um, are we talking about the Supreme Court in yeah, the U.S.? Yeah, the Supreme Court in the U.S., thank you. Um, because a woman stood up and said, like... This happened this a whole happened, bunch of years ago, and, and I still think it's relevant. And I still think it's relevant. And society and, was like, well, we don't know that it's relevant, and we yeah. don't know if or when it happened. Yeah. Um, so her uh, firsthand account of violence right. was not... Um, a point of data that was considered valuable right. in his selection for, Which, the, for the highest court in, like, in the United, States, the United yeah. States. So what I find interesting about that is we're not talking about guilty crimes. We're not talking about beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a job interview. Mm-hmm. If someone came to work at your company and someone else was like, hey, that person sexually assaulted me, would you be like, go away, person. We're going to hire this amazing candidate anyway. Yeah. It's sort of like, I don't know. We're talking about a job interview. We're not talking about should this person be quote unquote given their day in court. We're not talking about, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't feel like it's fair for defamation law to apply to firsthand accounts. Mm-hmm. If someone's like, no, this person did this thing to me, I don't think defamation law is suitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, mean, that's I entirely a, agree with you But that's you a on nuanced that. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's also taking in like a lot of information. Mm-hmm. It's looking at the power dynamics involved in sexual assault and heterosexual sexual assault. Mm-hmm. It's looking at the power dynamics involved in a judicial system at all. Mm-hmm. The power dynamics involved between male employers and male employees. Mm-hmm. And what do you do when a male employee has been accused of sexual assault by a woman? Mm-hmm. Do you just promote them? Because mm-hmm. that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like there's all this shit. And then also, I'm also taking into account 
most of the men's rights activisty kind of arguments mm-hmm. about, but we should also have access to a fair trial. Right. We should also have access to, and I'm like, yes, of course we should, if we're potentially losing our freedom and going to jail. Right. Like, that's what the Beyond a Reasonable Doubt standard is for. Now, to tie it back to the transformative justice yes, piece. Yes, thank you. Um, I would say, like, I would look at that case study, the case study, case study of, like, um, mm-hmm. Christine Blase Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, and, like, just for a minute, try to think about that situation with a justice system that was not punitive in nature. Right. Like, if Brett Kavanaugh wasn't fearing losing his job, losing his reputation, losing all of his hard work, right. and, like, maybe right. facing jail time, incarceration... Right. Like, if he weren't fearing all incarceration, things, yeah. Would he have, like, admitted to the thing that he had done? I might be incorrect, but I believe that he was past the statute of limitations. I don't think he could have faced jail time. The only so, thing that was at risk was really his there job, really I believe. There isn't a statute of limitations in Canada about sexual assault. Oh, I see. I thought we were talking... So I, but, but this is a U.S. But we're context. talking about the U.S. So, and I don't know what the statute of limitations you know laws Neither are do in the I. U.S. So in perfect... In, in honesty, I don't actually know either. My understanding was he was never facing jail time. That right. Was, there was no trial. There was no... Right. Like, even... Like, right. So, right. Um, most of this... Yeah. Like, basically, uh, I'm suggesting that we look at it like, what if he weren't going to face grave social consequences right. for admitting that he had done this thing. Right. Um, if he were going to, like, if he were going to be met with, like, community support and an attempt to rehabilitate. Right. To focus on behaviors that were harmful. Yeah. To focus on behaviors that were harmful those. and how to, like, move forward yeah. in a harm reduction capacity. Yeah. Capacity. yeah. Um, I feel that that would have changed everything. Yeah. Well, because we're all socialized in this really punitive carceral yeah. framework, mm-hmm. our schema, we if really you will. We really take for granted the fact that if you do something wrong, right. you will be punished. Yeah. And we think that that's normal and should be the case. Yeah. Whereas it's like, what's our goal? Is mm-hmm. our goal to hurt people? Because if our goal is to hurt people, we're doing a good job. Yeah. If our goal is to produce a society where people don't do the thing, mm-hmm. then we're doing a shit job. Mm-hmm. And all we do by criminalizing things is make everyday participants in society targets for violence. Mm-hmm. Like when we criminalize, even let's just take marijuana use, for example, mm-hmm. what really happened? Did people stop using marijuana? No. I mean, in BC, that's fucking laughable. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it's laughable in Washington and Oregon as yeah, well, probably absolutely. in California, yeah. probably all over the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. So if it's so laughable that our attempts to legislate drugs had really any significant impact beyond putting a target on the backs of all people in society like that, mm-hmm. and maybe dissuading some people from starting, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, um, th- like, I just like... Like, what? Like, why are we doing this? Like, why are we approaching things from this? Because literally all we're doing is saying these people deserve punishment. These mm-hmm. are the quote unquote bad people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fundamentally missing, like, the whole point of legislation in the first place, which is we want people to stop doing the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, most of the people who are, like, stopped by the police and found to have drugs in their possession are going to be fine if they're white. Yeah, or certainly more fine. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of racial politics yeah. in how drug legislation has been done, for totally. sure. Right down to the way that we tend to call cannabis marijuana. Yeah. Like, and for folks that are missing that connection, it has to do with using um, you know, a Spanish name for a drug so yeah. as to make it seem foreign, so yeah. as to incriminate you know, Latin American folks that are using cannabis more so than other people who use cannabis, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And there's all kinds of other racial stuff, too, about, like, and even class stuff mm-hmm. around, like, the availability and expense of drugs. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we don't need to go 
too deep into that issue because yeah. that is again a whole podcast on yeah. its own um but talking about why sex is political again um yeah i think that uh i mean i like adhere very strongly to the feminist principle of the personal being political and we consider i think that like we can agree that sex is pretty personal i think so yeah um and shedding light on dynamics that can evolve into uh trauma inducing hurtful right. um dangerous right. situations for people is very important political work right yeah and speaking specifically for reasoning behind that the notion of trauma is again one that requires a lot of mental health resources mm -hmm. it's going to be one that requires a lot of healing time mm -hmm. and when we typically look at some person in society has harmed me mm -hmm. we typically consider that a publicly um regulated interaction mm -hmm. in the same way that people can't steal from you they can't defame you mm -hmm. they can't um, murder you they can't rape you mm -hmm. like these are all sort of in that i mean they're in different categories of wrongness mm -hmm. um but rape is still considered criminal yeah I think for me, one of the biggest and defining issues with how we try and legislate sex is the way we look at consent. Yeah. We tend to treat consent and sex the same as we treat consent on a banking agreement or a yeah. shipping agreement. And those are very different kinds of agreements. Very. It's overly reductive to think that a contract is the best solution to every single possible agreement in society. Yeah. yeah. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. Um, what about contracts that change in real time? Like, mm -hmm. how do you, how do you update things that can't be updated it, it's like people like to think like oh well if you can't use a contract you can't use anything it's the most robust form but i strongly disagree with that notion mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of failings of contracts as anybody who has talked about fine print knows yeah there needs to be um like free ability to revoke consent absolutely i think in order for like consent to actually be uh, sound for lack of a better word mm. um I, yeah, I think that like the, like the cost of any conflict that may arise from revoking conflict needs Consent. to be low. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's complicated in like a business arena. And again, the contract is sort of aiming at this universal theory of everything of like, how can we have a universal theory of agreements? We can't. Yeah, it's I would, too nuanced and so too context specific. I would tend to agree with that, or at the very least, if you were to write up relationships as a written contract, it would it would require one a certain level of of legal. Um, um, what's the word for being able to read? Um, literacy, a yeah. certain degree of legal literacy that most people don't have. Mm -hmm. So it's not practical or useful. Mm -hmm. Like ultimately the written contract, it has become an extension of academic work. Mm -hmm. It is, it is a thing that professionals do for you mm -hmm. for a very expensive amount of money. Yeah. Um, depending on what class you are. Cause some people find contracts very reasonable. Right. Right. If you run a business, if you have enough money to get by a few hundred dollars, isn't a big deal, yeah. but if you're working class, it is. And working class people have sex as well. Yeah. So and yeah. I like another reason why it's political is money. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, I think that there's a lot of people that think sex is like, uh, something that can freely be negotiated as you go. Sure. Um, or that, or they just haven't thought about it that thoroughly. Right. Like there's a set of things that happen. You smash your bodies together. Everybody gets off. Everybody's happy. Um, but that's what a not fairy tale true. That is. I know that's super not true for all people. Yeah. 
Um, That's a fairy tale, in my opinion. Yeah, entirely. And, like, good on you if you found your fairy tale partner that you can yeah. smash bodies with and not talk about anything, and it just magically works. Yeah. But just because, like, those you, you successfully have navigated to the end of the maze in that one instance doesn't mean every instance is going to have that outcome. Exactly. Yeah, I've had I have a pile of anecdotes on that front. Um, any of them cheer you up or feel positive or you want to share? Like, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> honestly, yeah. Um, I yeah, I have like a long and complicated history of like sexual relationships and uh, not a lot of like happy tales to tell. And, but like a handful of happy tales to tell, um, because I like, it's, I wrote a note earlier cause I was thinking about, um, Gabor Mate says a thing about relationships and trauma and like the trauma that we experience in a relationship, like can be healed in relationship as well. Mm. And I think also with mm-hmm. sexual relationships that the trauma that we experience as a result of sexual connection or, um, or like rape for that matter can be healed within sexual relationships. Uh, and I think that oftentimes when folks experience sexual trauma, they think that that means that they either need to like just back the fuck off of having sex or they just try to like, um, exposure therapy, the thing where they're like, I'm just going to like push through this and end up like re-traumatizing themselves. Yeah. There's Um, an important note there about like the capacity of your body to hold trauma. Yes. Do you want to talk more about that? Um, or do you want me to just like say a thing? And... Yeah, say a thing, and then okay. I'll I'll bounce off of it. Wonderful. <laughs> um, there was a post written by someone from Victoria who's in Montreal now, mm-hmm. and they were talking about um, the notion of adding only the smallest amount that you can mm-hmm. of of trauma to exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. Like, don't don't process, don't try to process so much that you overwhelm your body's ability to like physiologically hold what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. This was a somatic therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and that makes sense to me. I think the metaphor they used was titration because yes. in titration you add an extremely small amount of one substance to another yeah. and you're always mindful. Sometimes it feels like, okay, but I can add a whole bunch and I don't go past the tipping point in the titration. Right. But that that urge to get it over with quickly mm-hmm. can end up ruining the whole process because the second you get close to a titration point, if you add any more than the very smallest amount you can add, mm-hmm. the whole experiment is fucked. You right. have no usable data, really. I have a good um, example of that, which is to say, like, being a relatively sexually traumatized person and then spending two years organizing sex parties. Ooh, that's intense. Yeah. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> yeah, organizing um, sex parties. Yeah. It, like... I learned a lot of stuff about myself and I learned a lot of stuff about groups and about like community organization and about sex positivity and about my own like values. Um, and also I like walked into a burning room repeatedly and just like, and dissociated. I spent a lot of dissociated time in that space. So when you say walked into a burning room, you mean you came into a space where you did not perceive good consent negotiations? Um, I mean, like, I was walking into a room that was full of my own triggers. Okay, thank you. Um, so there wasn't, like, like my ability to feel safe in that space was really debilitated. Right. Um, so you ended up organizing these parties that fundamentally weren't for you. Yeah, entirely. It's almost like you were socialized to do something like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
weird. <laughs> I just think it's good to point at like the burning buildings as we pass them on this road trip. Yeah, totally. Um, I think also that um, that informed a lot of where I sit now in terms mm-hmm. of uh, sex positive communities and um, trauma. Uh, I think that like what I need, I think is a more trauma informed sex positive space. Sure. And not ironically at all, when I speak to men in like sex positive community or in greater sex education community, they tell me that that doesn't exist. And then when I talk to queer women about it, they tell me that of course it exists. It's just that men aren't invited. Um, yeah. So (laughs) that doesn't surprise me in the least. Yeah. Um, like it made me chuckle. A little bit. Yeah. Which makes me wonder where the trauma-informed space could possibly exist for men who are traumatized. Yes, entirely. And that is a gaping blind spot, I think, in a lot of, like, queer women's pursuits for trauma-informed sex-positive space. Which makes sense, because it's queer women's pursuits. Yeah. And, like, why should they have to do any emotional labor around men that Mm -hmm. want, you know, rehabilitating spaces? Like, Mm -hmm. ultimately, it's going to be men that need to do that work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't even think it's a gaping thing around queer women. Like, I'm like, no, they don't have any obligation to do this shit for us. Some of those queer women want to have sex with men. Okay. In those cases, then, yes, there may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Thank yeah. you for mentioning that. Yeah. Um, and for folks that may be confused, we're using queer in the term of essentially, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. if that's not how you're using it, um, but queer so as to mean not heterosexual cisgendered. Yes. Like literally that's all we're saying. We're yes. saying every kind of orientation that is yes. not cisgendered and heterosexual is queer mm-hmm. in the same way that we're saying every kind of relationship that does not, that is not monogamous and heterosexual is alternative. Yes. We're literally saying, hey, we'd like to talk about the entirety of the human experience except this one tiny experience that dominates every conversation. Yes. So when we use the word queer, we're using it in that capacity, which is why we're including women who like to have sex with men. Yeah. Who maybe aren't heterosexual. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, specifically who aren't heterosexual, otherwise we wouldn't call yeah. them queer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. That yeah. was a really good rundown of like what's political about sex. I think we touched on a lot of really interesting issues. Yeah. Before we wrap up this podcast, I do want to talk about a definition of what trauma is and how it impacts our relationships. Cause you made it a great, you gave a great example of how being in alternative communities and mm-hmm. in sex positive spaces can be really challenging when it's not trauma informed, mm-hmm. when people are not making an effort to make the space accessible mm-hmm. to people who have, um, I don't want to say emotional disabilities, but Mm -hmm. like to some extent being gravely or grievously wounded in an Mm -hmm. interaction with someone does leave an injury of some Mm -hmm. kind. And if people aren't mindful of that, then they just kind of like bump into you and trip over you. And like, you're the one that ends up getting hurt if you're you're the injured or traumatized person. Right. Um, The D in PTSD is disorder. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If we want to use like normal (laughs) psychology, what have you. Um, which sucks, but there it is. Yeah. Um, so what is trauma in in your definition and like, how does it impact relationships that you're in? In, for me, trauma is a psychological injury. Um, yeah, basically. I like that. Um, and all the effects downstream of that. Right. Um, and as with most things that we experience like emotionally or socially, um, there's effects and injury tends to reverberate through the rest of our experiences. 
and mm. informs. It can be very phys- physiologically and also um, like cognitively informing what we're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's how off the top of my head, that's what I would say about it. Cool. Um, it, mean, it like comes down to harm. Yeah. Um, and I like, I think that with the Me Too movement specifically, we now have it on pretty good authority that like most women have experienced sexual some trauma. Now, yeah. Mm-hmm, in some way, shape, or form. Yep. Um, yeah. I remember reading statistics about like women who uh, have experienced sexual assaults over the course of their lives, and like it started at like, I don't know, four out of ten or something, and then it was three out of five, and I'm like, now it's probably more like four out of five or like five out of six. Well, because some of it is a definitional thing. Yeah. Um, which actually touches on the article you sent me of like, how much do we normalize violence in mm-hmm. intimate relationships? Mm-hmm. Like, to what extent have we gone from one side of the slider mm-hmm. where like literally uh, a man had quote unquote marital rights? Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Entirely. Which is like, holy shit. Yeah. And like, that, wasn't that, that didn't long ago. change until like recently. Like, less than 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is fucked. Yeah. So there, then, were, there was marital <laughs> rights on like one side, which yeah. is like, what the fuck? How can you even euphemize it like that? Yeah. Um, but then like that slider has sort of been moving where we're like, oh, this behavior without consent is not okay. Yeah. This behavior without consent is not okay. And we've come to this place where what people are arguing about is what consent is mm-hmm. rather than what's okay without consent. Mm-hmm. So like in a sense, one of those sliders has come all the way over to the point where we're like, no, shit isn't okay without consent. Mm-hmm. And now the big question is like, what shit is okay without consent? Is mm-hmm. it ordering a sub at Subway? Not they didn't pay me any money. I shouldn't be putting in a plug for them. But you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is it getting food made for you at, mm-hmm. a, at a popular restaurant place or unpopular <laughs> one? Uh-huh. Um, so it's like, what, what should we have to get consent for? And what is consent? Are the two big questions, I think, in the mainstream right now. Yes. Which is inherently they're political questions. Because yes. people from different political, people with pl- different political opinions are going to disagree. And people with different lived experiences are going to disagree based on yes. how they were socialized in whatever countries, as whatever genders, mm-hmm. as whatever classes. Like, these are important divisions. And they change our experience of the world. Mm-hmm. And that is why sex is inherently political. And why all the questions around se- sex in the mainstream and around consent are inherently political, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you want to wrap this one up here and then we can come back to talk about mental wellness? Yes. Let's do it. Let's do that. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and having these conversations. Yeah. And for all of our listeners, if you liked this episode, tell your friends. And if you would be so kind, you can even leave us reviews so that it helps other intimacy geeks find us. All right. Bye-bye. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. 
The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Resurrection by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.